Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to the essential skills for success that no one taught you. Today, we'll cover the gamut and discuss the top skills and approaches necessary for navigating a career in a new and changing landscape. Our guest today is Mark Hirschberg. Mark is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. He's a chief technology officer, and he spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups, Fortune 500s, and in academia. At MIT, where he teaches annually, he helped to start what's called MIT's Career Success Accelerator. At Harvard Business School, Mark helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. In his spare time, he actively works with many nonprofits and is one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country. He received a BS in physics, a BS in electrical engineering and computer science, and a master's in electrical engineering and computer science, focusing on cryptography from MIT. Welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's going to be a very interesting conversation because clearly we are both very passionate about the whole topic of work and careers. I'd love to start with how did you get into this space? I mean, given your background, which is amazing, but yet a very technical early career path, how did you come to be focused on the whole space of how to navigate a career? When I looked at my own career path, I knew early on that I wanted to become a CTO. And this is why I was a software developer. So I knew, okay, I need to know technology well, but there was more to it. To be a CTO doesn't mean you're the best software developer. It means you know how to manage a team, how to lead a team, how to hire people, how to work with other departments like sales and product and finance. And there were all these other skills that, well, you don't learn when you're taught to be a software engineer. So I set out to understand these skills and develop them in myself. And as I moved into managerial positions and hired people, I would ask a technical question. I'd get a technical answer. But then I would ask, okay, what makes someone a good teammate? And I'd get a blank stare. And I realized I knew the answers to this because I had gone out and sought them. But again, we don't teach this in the standard university programs, so no one else was learning it. And I realized this was a deficiency in our educational program. I set out to find tools that could help train up the team. There wasn't a lot. This is a little over 20 years ago. And then at the same time, I heard that at MIT, they were working on a program similar in nature, focusing on these skills. So I reached out and said, hey, I'm focusing on this as well, happy to collaborate. And from there, I helped develop the course and then wound up helping to teach it. And this really became this kind of side passion of mine. This is, I think of it as a parallel career where I've had my main job as a CTO building companies. But this side job, it's really been a passion of mine, helping people with their professional efficacy and helping people develop these skills and be more effective in their careers with what I've done at MIT, as well as some of the volunteer work and other things I've done throughout my own career. That's amazing. And so let's jump into the Career Success Accelerator at MIT. What does that entail? And tell us about it and maybe some of the impact that you've seen since it started. How many years ago was that? 20 years ago. 20 years ago. So, so, and how has it evolved given all that's changed in those 20 years? MIT had gotten feedback from the corporate partners we work with, the companies that come and hire our students. And they said, they're great. Technically, they certainly know what they're doing. But when we look to hire people, we want to see not just technical acumen, but we want to see people who are good teammates, who are leaders, strong communicators, have diverse networks, 
think about ethical implications, know how to negotiate, all these other skills that we don't teach. And so this program, we developed it. And by the way, this is not just an MIT need. Similar feedback has been given to universities all across America, where companies are saying, we want these skills in our people, but they're not being trained. And so at MIT, we set out not just to teach this, but to change the culture at MIT. And we started out with 70 students the first year. We grew over the years. We doubled in size, I think, the second or third year. And we continue to grow after that. Lots of changes over the years. We've swapped content in and out. Obviously, this year we have been virtual and struggled with adapting, as everyone has. But I would say fundamentally throughout, the approach has been that it is peer-based learning. It is small group learning. These are not simply classes where we say, well, we're going to lecture at you for another X hours and you'll know more. But it's role-playing, it's interactive, it's small group learning. And in fact, one thing that's probably been growing over the years, it's a combination of faculty members, and we have them because it is a credit class and at MIT you need professors to teach that, but they also bring in professionals like myself to come and provide real-world examples and help connect the dots for the students. And in fact, the participation of people like myself has grown as we've even reduced the amount of interaction with the professors because it's designed to be a very practical, hands-on, experiential class. Why do you think either at the university level or even in professional life, these skills sometimes aren't offered or aren't stressed as much as they should be? And similarly, I built something and taught something at GE 30 years ago. And I just look back and think, to your very point, why hasn't this progressed more, do you think, given, gosh, the need for upskilling and navigating and pivoting so much in a career? What's that about? Debbie Burke, who used to be at GE, was actually one of our mentors for a couple of years. Mm. And now GE was famous for Croton and the training they did there, but that's the exception, not the rule. At the university level, it has to do with the, the reasons we have universities in the first place which goes back hundreds of years, but it's because you had people saying, we're going to help you gain deep understanding in a particular area, which hundreds of years ago was natural philosophy, a fancy name for science. Back then it was just one science all kind of combined. And it's certainly grown, but the essence of the university system is you have masters within a domain experts in physics, experts in marketing, experts in communication, whatever the field is. These are the deep experts. They've done PhDs and they are the gatekeepers to say, if you want to call yourself credentialed at a bachelor's, master's or PhD level, here's what you need to know for us to say, okay, you, you pass and you qualify at this level, but it's all discipline specific. Now, universities over the years threw in some extra general requirements, make sure you take a math and a history class and foreign language, but it is still the departments are dominated by experts in the departments who focus on departmental skills and not, okay, this is what's going to make you effective in the workplace. And that is a different goal than unfortunately universities, because our educational system, universities and other parts of our educational system are kind of backwards facing, they don't think about what do you need to be successful tomorrow. Mm, that's so true. And, you know, you talked about your own initiative. So you saw something you needed in your career and on your path, and you went and figured it out and got it. And that initiative is key, right? No matter what a company does, no matter what you got in your education, that's a differentiator. Any thoughts on what was it about you that said, I'm going to go figure this out? And did you have any impact at the time? Was it hitting you in a way that is, I'm not going to succeed unless I go do this or any learnings from that experience? What the initial impetus was, was simply my you know, MIT type A mindset of, oh, I know there's something more, so I'm going to go learn this. I'm going to go read. But what really was impactful, probably the most impactful book early in my career was a book called Peopleware. And it was on software management, people were by Tom DeMarco, Timothy Lister. And there's not a single line of code in the book. The premise of the book is most software projects fail, 
but they fail not because of technological reasons, not because, oh, if only we had a PhD, they could have figured this out. They fail because of interpersonal reasons, because you had a communication issue, because your team didn't gel right, because people didn't get along. And now I'm a CTO today. If you talk to any of my colleagues, we will all tell you this is absolutely true. It is the people issues. And I can tell you people issues were not addressed in my traditional training at MIT in a standard CS program. And what was important, what happened with that book is a mindset shift. And I'll give you an example. At MIT, when I went there, networking was seen as a dirty word. Mm-hmm. Even some today still right. may think that. And at MIT in particular, because we're such a meritocracy and we are an objective meritocracy, when you have two people, they take the chemistry class, one gets a 90, one gets an 82. We say, okay, well, that person who got a 90 is smarter. We objectively know this to be true. Therefore, our company should take that person, not the 82. Okay, well, the 82 got in because, you know, through networking, because that 82 was the best friend of the CEO's son. Ooh, doesn't that feel dirty? And in that first mental model of, well, line everyone up by test score, yes, it does. But if you broaden the model to say, okay, that raw IQ or knowledge of chemistry is important, sure. But you know what else is important? Because this other person has been the best friend of the CEO's son since they were five, the CEO knows that he is hardworking, that he will show up on time. He's responsible. He's reliable. He takes initiative. Those are certainly valuable skills that might not be evident in the other cat or might not be as clear. And so, yeah, you're giving up a little of the raw knowledge, but you're gaining these other factors. And that was evident through networking, which provided another signal. And when you look at it in that framework, okay, networking wasn't duplicitous. It wasn't pushing a hand line. It was providing more information that made you a more viable candidate. And it's when you get this mindset on these skills that you start to realize how and why you want to learn them and how they can make you be more effective. Exactly. Even personal branding, I think, has come a long way in terms of appreciation of how important that is, when also many would have thought, I don't want to have to pay attention to that. Yeah, unfortunately, personal branding, another thing we don't talk about within our classic training, but it is really important. Now, I can say in, in my own career, I have never had to convince someone I'm good at math. Right? They look and say, oh, you have MIT degrees. I know you can do the math. I don't wonder, will this be too technical, too complex for you? On the other hand, when you say, okay, well, Mark's a guy with all these MIT degrees. Does he know how to read a balance sheet? Does he understand leadership? Because, well, we know we, we don't teach leadership to people in computer science. So he says he knows it, but I don't know if I believe that, right? Because my formal education didn't convey it. So one thing I learned in my career is that I needed to get my personal brand to align to my goals. And in my case, the shortcoming was on these non-technical skills. Now, for everyone, it's going to be different. And this can be done in different ways. There are kind of big ways to do it. One is going out and speaking about it, writing a book, or being on blogs, being on podcasts, and kind of just building up that brand connection. And Dory Clark, who's written Reinventing You, talks a lot about these great strategies. But then there's also more subtle things. So I wear French cuff shirts almost every day at work, at least when I'm not stuck at home during a pandemic. And now I don't need to dress that way. I work in tech. I can show up in a t-shirt and jeans. I happen to like dressing this way, but also conveys that image because I say, oh, you know, dress shirt, French cuffs. Okay, he looks businessy. And I don't need to convey they look technically, except on the rare occasions. It's funny. Most people talk about dressing up to go to events. If I go to a tech event, say I want to recruit and there's some evening event, I will then have to dress down because if I show up at that event in a French cuff shirt, everyone looks and goes, ah, he's some suit. He's not one of us. He's not a real engineer. And so there I dress down so I don't overshadow my other brand of, yes, I'm a very technical guy. Yeah, that's great examples. And it does matter. Tell us about the career 
Toolkit, the book you recently wrote, who is it for and what's most impactful about it, do you think? It really is for everybody. And what I mean by this, if we look at, for example, the last section of the book where the chapters are communication, negotiation, networking, and ethics, I have met people even in their 40s, 50s, 60s who have said, yeah, wow, I this is helpful. I never really thought about it. Everyone tells us networking, but no one's actually ever formally said, here's how to do it. And there are some good tips there. So they really can happen at any level. Career planning, chapter one. Sure, it's a little more impactful in your 20s, but even in your 40s, if you're not happy where you are, that can be helpful. I will say it for small business owners, usually I say, okay, well, the career planning, I know what I want to do. It's running my business. But these other skills, the leadership, the management, the networking negotiations, they really apply and they apply throughout our career. And in the book, you know, let's talk about career planning. Do most people that you know have a career plan? And to your point, even if you have one, I imagine it has to stay quite agile. And as you change, your values change, life change. But what goes into a good one? What does a good one look like? Unfortunately, most people don't. At best, people have, well, here's the next job I want to get. And I think of it like a chess game. That's great. You know your next move. But if you want to win the game, you got to think more than one move ahead, right? You want to have that plan. When you think about how to create a plan, it begins by asking yourself a bunch of questions. And it's not just career questions. It's life questions. Where do you want to be in life? What do you want to do? What are your goals financially? Where do you want to live? What are your family plans? What are things you enjoy doing, don't enjoy doing? Do you want flexibility in your job? Do you prefer more well-defined jobs? Are there things you like to do? I like meeting new people or no, no, I'm very introvert. I want to just sit in my office, look at a computer all day. So there's a bunch of these questions that you can start answering that's going to help give you some guidance and direction. You should also go out and talk to people and learn about their jobs because what we think a job is is not necessarily what it is. I always give the example of lawyers, right? We grow up on TV and we see whatever the popular law show is when we're kids. Oh, that looks exciting, that courtroom drama. And every lawyer will tell you that is nothing like reality. Most lawyers just sit in a room by themselves, drafting contracts or you know redlining things, very different. And if you don't actually talk to them and say, what is your job like? You don't realize that. And you Go in thinking you're going to get courtroom drama, and then you wind up very disappointed. So you want to talk to people. And then when you set what your long-term goal is, you want to backtrack. So as I did becoming CTO, I said, it's not just about being the best coder. Here are the other things I need to get there. And then creating a plan to, over the years, acquire those skills to qualify for the job. And to your point, here's the key thing. It has to be flexible. Your end goal might even change, right? Especially when we're younger and we say, oh, that's, you know, I used to think I wanted that, but realize it's something different I want. But even if your end goal stays the same, the path to get there is going to change because it's never going to work out exactly as you planned. Whether it's because the job didn't quite grow you the way you wanted, or there was a global pandemic and your company went out of business, you know, things happen and we have to constantly adjust. And so I talk about ways you can regularly reassess and readjust your plans. That's amazing. I worked with someone, this is going back, it was around the time of GE when we were focused on a career type curricula. It was a colleague who I have never seen this since, but had a very detailed career plan that just as you described all aspects of his life and, you know, he's sort of mid-career, but when he was going to retire, financial goal, everything. And I was so impressed with it. And yet, to your point, knew you have to hold it certainly a bit lightly because of things, you know, that can certainly change along the way. You may decide to pursue something very different, but it does guide you and it's really important. Think of it just like any project we do at work. Because I know there are some people say, oh, you can't plan for your career. It just kind of happens. I would never do a project at work and no one would accept. Yeah. Hey, I'm not going to do a project plan for this. Let's just spend six months, see where we wind up. But we also know when we do that project plan, we can guarantee it's not going to go according to plan, right? Things will get thrown off. And so we adjust. 
And so just have this similar type of approach for your own career. I agree. And I think it really speaks to you being in control. Otherwise, really, it's what people want from you that end up guiding you and pulling you in different directions. That is a very important point. There are these invisible forces, and it could be your boss trying to assign you to a project. It could be macroeconomic events completely out of people's control, but these forces are going to impact your career, sometimes for the better. Sometimes you'll get some great opportunity, but sometimes it will push you back. And so you have to be proactive. You can't just hope that all these forces are going to magically take you where you want to go. You have to be proactive. And sometimes the wind's at your back and sometimes it's at your front and you just have to make the best of the situation you're in by consciously deciding a path forward. That's so true. Mark, you talk about in the book as well, the importance of managing one's manager. What are some of your key points about why that's important and how to do it? And some people do do it well, and maybe they're not as good with peers or managing down. All three are important, but often this is not a great skill for some. So what would you advise? Yeah, it's not a great skill because we rarely talk about it. It's rarely formally taught. All of us have certain styles. And I'll give a few examples because this can be taken broadly, and this is not an exhaustive set. One is just how we tend to engage in our work. I know I'm not a morning person. And if you want to pitch me on some big project, catching me 9 a.m. Monday morning, I'm not going to be able to think and focus on it. I was like, all right, let me just settle in first. Right, we have bosses like that. On the other hand, if you catch me 10 at night, you know, hey, great. That's why I'm really awake. And yeah, I can really focus on this. I'll read your email then. I'll read the report then. Other people, they know they have hard boundaries. They say, look, six o'clock, I'm out of here. I have family time. So let's just say emergency. Do not bother me at night, right? And knowing these just subtle preferences helps you just not annoy your boss, right? Now that's a, that's a base level, but finding the right time for it. Then we have how we like to look at problems. I am a numbers guy. You can give me a really passionate pitch and make some really emotional case. I go, wow, this is exciting. But still, I want to see a budget, a project plan. I want to see what's the ROI from this, because that's how I like to think. There are other people who you can say, hey, look, you know, here's a detailed plan. I've got all broken down in a spreadsheet. And if they're a big picture person, you lost them. <laughs> I, I do not have time. I don't want to sit through this spreadsheet. And their eyes will glaze over. And so you're not communicating in the style that your manager wants. So these are just a couple examples. And it applies certainly to our managers, but really applies to all our peers, all our coworkers, up and down and to the side. Understanding how people communicate and engage with work lets you engage with them more effectively. Mark, I'm also fascinated by this this notion of fit to a corporate culture and some of the implications of that. If someone's in an interviewing process, how do you think from their perspective, they should think about the corporate culture, the culture of that organization that they're looking at? And how much do they need to be thinking about? Do they fit? Should they change You know what they need to do to fit something? I'm beginning to think that this whole notion of fit is archaic, and it really prevents us from you know, moving to a more inclusive and diverse organization and we overplay it. But I'd love to know your thoughts. I do think it's applicable. But if you ask most people, what does it mean to fit into corporate culture? I don't think most people could give you a clear definition. The best they can do is a Justice Potter-like, I'll know it when I see it. But that is not sufficient. In an interview, just saying, I know it when I'll see it, is the wrong way to approach it. In my interviewing chapter, in which I approach interviewing mostly from the side of the hiring manager, because here again, there's plenty of resources for a candidate, but we don't train people how to hire. And most of us have to hire other people. We've never been trained for this. So I, I talk about how to consciously look at what you are looking for and then how to assess it. When it comes to corporate culture, and we of course do this as a candidate as we're assessing it, it comes down to could be any number of factors. One is certainly, is this the type of company that says, look, you know, we're, we are a 40-hour work week, or we expect you know, five o'clock, you go home, and unless it's an emergency, we're not going to bother you. We also know there are companies where, no, no, 
If you get a text, you are responding within five minutes or something's wrong. This is important to understand. I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other. Now, people might have preferences saying I very much like one or the other, but whichever it is, it's important to understand that. Because if you are someone who says, I want to be done at six, and they expect you to respond to emails at 10, that's not going to be a good fit. And you better understand this ahead of time. Another classic example. So GE is famous for having a combative is not quite the right word, but a culture in which there is open disagreement. Yeah. Now I, I have my like that. I, I tell all my employees, look, you can and should question any proposal, right? And they can say, Mark, you know, your idea, it's not good. And here's why, right? I want to see that. I want that open debate in the in our meetings and in the company in general, because I think that fosters good ideas. Now, there are other cultures where you never have open debate within the organization and or you never challenge your manager. Now, in the ones that don't have that open debate, it is more of a let's you and I speak in your office. Let's hash out our ideas and find a way, not arguing in front of everyone, how we're going to find common ground here. And so you can imagine a culture, if that's the culture of we work it out in private in the offices before the meeting, and I show up to the meeting not knowing this, and I say, okay, well, here's why I think we should change what everyone's talking about. Everyone's going to look at me and say, you do not belong here. You're causing disharmony, and that's not what we look for here, right? And neither approach is better, but you have to make sure you fit into what the organization wants. I think it's a... And I love that your examples, it is a bigger conversation because I think that's the predominant style. And to your point, you need to know it and know what you're getting into. But I'd like to think we do hire people to help us shift too and and have a mix of ways of operating. And, you know, we often hire talent in because we want to move towards something different. And then we organ reject them when they try to move us there. So you have to know, but it is, you're right, it's just not such a clear cut kind of thing. I actually give that very example in the book where I use the analogy to making steel. When you have pure iron, it's very soft. But if you put just a little bit of carbon into the iron, it's still mostly iron, but has now a little bit of carbon, all of a sudden you get steel, which is much stronger. And you're right that sometimes we very much want someone with a different style, a different cultural fit, because we say this is going to enhance us. But that needs to be very conscious. And you need to say to the organization, hey, this person's coming in. He or she is different. And here is why. And this is a good thing. And be aware of it. So people interview internally. They interview when they're looking to make a move externally. And there's so many questions that one could be asked, what are some of your favorites and that either you like to ask or you've been asked and you think people might really want to be thinking about? I always like to start with, tell me about yourself. It is intentionally broad. And I learn a lot about the person, not simply by what they say, but when we look at using interview questions, we also have to look at the meta question, excuse me, or the meta answer. What is the person trying to convey? So a common approach to this is, okay, let me just walk you through my resume. I did this job and that job and I was here and this is what I did. Okay, you took me through in a very linear way. Someone else might approach it episodically, right? Think about all the different ways we tell stories with movies, right? From the flashback, from the, from the you know, hero's journey. So you might tell it about, you know, my whole career has been leading up to this job. It began when I started here and realized I have a love for this. And then when I moved to this job, I picked up these skills. And so, okay, you still might be doing it in a linear order, but now you're tying it together in a narrative. That tells me you are more of a narrative or storytelling person. There are yet other ways to do it. And so looking at that meta question, intentionally keeping it open, even things like, how much time do you spend talking about your family versus your job, right? Now, many people, after they tell this is what I do, and by the way, you know, I also, these are my hobbies or a little about me, fine. I have some people where they spend 60% of their time talking about their personal life, 
go, huh, all right. They clearly don't have the contextual awareness to say it's an interview. You might want to bring a little bit of that in. That's fine. Gives me some, some background. But if most of your answers are not related to the work, you don't understand the purpose of this. And you're going to be in situations where you don't understand the environment you're in and how to answer it. So I, I like that as a starting broad question. That's terrific. You've also said people are always interviewing. What do you mean by that? And does that relate back to your personal brand? It very much relates to your personal brand. All of us have this, this brand going out, whether we're intentionally designing it or not. And that brand perceives us. Certainly within our communities, right? Might be our industry, might be a larger community. The world's not so big. And when you are going to a job, someone probably knows who you are, right? Some of that organization either knows you or knows someone who knows you. And at some point, they're going to find that out, right? They're going to ask for that back channel reference. They're going to learn a little about you. We hope it's positive. It could be negative. And that's getting built up by the things you do. Now, again, sometimes it's formal. It could be things like, oh, Mark, he's been teaching at MIT. Okay, there's some, there's some good credibility. But it could also be people I've worked with who have said, oh, yeah, you know, Mark's really great to work with, right? That's not something you're going to see you know, necessarily in, oh, at MIT. Well, that means he's easy to work with, right? It's going to be a between the lines thing. But when someone says, yeah, I've worked with him and you know, we all found him easy to work with. He was great at getting outside the siloed organization we had. Fantastic. That's part of the reputation. Now, when we go and do things externally, we're interviewing. Right now, I am interviewing for jobs. I have no idea with who or what they are, but everyone listening to this is learning a little more about me. They might be saying, wow, Mark, he has some great ideas. I really like what he has to say. Or might be saying, this is horribly pedantic. And so uh, this guy contributes nothing, right? But you're getting some impression of me. So true. And you never know where some connection or, you know, your next move or any part of it is going to come from. Absolutely. So we have to be conscious of that in how everything we do, how's that going to impact the brand? Now, you certainly don't want to have that mental tax of, oh, I ordered this sandwich, what's this do for my brand? (laughs) (laughs) But we should, to some extent, think about, hey, do I want to go speak at this conference? How can this help me? with future opportunities? Do I want to build these connections? Do I want to do this? What can this do for my brand? So not every little detail, but as you think about big actions, as you think about engaging with organizations, providing some content or some activity to the greater world, that's going to help you in your interviews in a very indirect way. You mentioned earlier being conscious of your own executive presence and how you sort of come across in different situations to shape your own personal brand. Is there any other tip you might give someone if they're thinking about shaping or even reinventing their own brand? I'm going to give one of my favorite tips from Dory Clark in which to understand your brand, you have to know where you are to figure out how to get to where you want to be. And Dory has this great simple tip. She says, go out and ask people you know, please give me three words that describe me. And so if I get from lots of people, oh, technical, right? Or quantitative or mathematical. Okay, great. Everyone knows I'm a quantitative person. I don't have to worry about convincing people about that. Good. One less thing for me to do. Oh, you know what I'm not hearing? I'm not hearing leader huh, okay, well, I better adjust and make sure more people think of me as a leader. And hey, are there events I could go to, things I could do that will help me be perceived as a leader? So you can do this really simple technique to get that feedback to know where you are, because it's only by knowing where you are that you can figure out the path to where you want to be. Exactly. I worked with someone who so capable, and yet they had a small thing that you could say, well, does that matter? But it had such an impact and they were always late. So the minute they got to the room, they were supremely impactful, but they used to saunter in five or 10 minutes, almost invariably. And it, I just would observe how much that detracted. 
And I thought, I bet they don't get what a big deal that is and thought, well, what, you know, and again, so some things can be big. I really want to work on some bigger perception of my management capability or my, as you say, communication and this and that. But sometimes they can be seemingly small things that have a big impact. And to flip Dory's advice on its head, you can also ask, what do you think are my biggest weaknesses? We certainly know we get that in an interview. Ask your peers, mm-hmm. right? Because that person, everyone would have said, you're great, but you show up late. And when you right. hear but that- detracts. Yeah, when you hear mm-hmm. that from lots of people, they say, okay, this is clearly visible. I need to address it. Brilliant. How, Mark, would you say someone could really explore whether or not they want to be a manager or a leader or an even bigger scope manager or leader? What might some of the top skills be from your perspective or some questions to ask as they're thinking that through? Because also we both have seen too many examples of people going into roles early on or mid through their career and just not being ready. What are your thoughts? The best way to explore this is to talk to people in these roles is to ask them, what do you actually do? What's a typical day like? Not the job description, but tell me, what do you do day to day? What are the things you like about? What are the things you don't like? Someone who wants this role, what should they know before they take it? So go and talk to people and explore. And I'd say certainly the biggest step is that first individual contributor to managerial role. Because as we move up the ladder from individual contributor, it's typically about having more expertise within our particular discipline. And then suddenly when you become a manager, there's a whole bunch of different skills that you haven't used to the same extent. And this is where we see a lot of missteps. A lot of great individual contributors, they think, well, to advance my career, I have to get into management. And what happens is you lose a great individual contributor, you gain a subpar manager, and you take this double whammy. A lot of corporations have fortunately said, we're going to create parallel tracks because we know there are some fantastic people, but managing is not their strength or skill. If it is a direction you want to go in, recognize that it needs to be looked at holistically. One of the reasons I wrote the book as I did, where I have all these different skills, I have chapters on negotiation, on management, on interviewing, on communications. It's because these all build on each other. Now, there's plenty of books that are just about negotiations, just about communications, and they are fantastic books, and you should read them. But we know that a good leader knows how to negotiate. A good negotiator knows how to communicate. A good communicator knows how to listen and incorporate feedback. And all these skills build upon each other. So as you learn these skills, also think about how they support the other skills in your toolkit. So you mentioned negotiation. One of our points at Modern Career is that our whole career is a negotiation. What's one of your points of view or tips on negotiations, how important they are? Any insights? I'm going to give two tips because this is such an important skill to learn. The first for those saying, oh, yeah, I should, but I'm never going to get around to it. So imagine the following scenario. You take a job at age 25, and they offer you $70,000, and you do one little negotiation. You negotiate up $1,000, 70 to 71000 right? That's not a huge stretch. And if you do nothing else for your entire career, you sit there the next 40 years, that one tiny negotiation just earned you $40,000, right? Massive impact. Of course, we know you're not going to stay at that one job forever, you're going to get raises. You're going to have other jobs. You're probably going to negotiate more than just $1,000. Learning to negotiate is going to add literally tens of thousands, most likely hundreds of thousands of dollars in value to your lifetime. And it's not about being the world's greatest negotiator. It's just learning to be a little better. So this is why you should invest in this. And now I always use negotiations because it's very clear. You say, oh, I literally just got $1,000 more. But the same logic applies to if you're just 1% better at being a leader, 1% better in your communications, in your networking, right? You get the same returns. It just won't be quite as obvious of an immediate dollar amount. 
But now here's the other key thing, because I put this now in a very classic job negotiation. And I agree with your philosophy that our careers have lots of negotiations throughout them. Unfortunately, most people, inexperienced negotiators, think of negotiation as this job situation. We're going to sit across the table. You're going to slide a number to me. I'm going to slide a number back to you. And we're going to do this zero sum, you know, find a way to get you know, money we're comfortable with. And that's certainly a type of negotiation. But in fact, we negotiate much more often, not just every few years when we get a raise or a new job. We negotiate when we have customers, when we have vendors, when we have partnerships. We negotiate with our teammates. We negotiate when we're doing a project. And okay, what part are you going to do? What part am I going to do? Well, hey, can you do this earlier because this is blocking me? Oh, but then, okay, you need me to get you this so you can do it earlier. These are negotiations. We're not negotiating against each other. In fact, no negotiation is against the other party. It really is negotiation partners. We negotiate together to find a solution. But when you start to think of negotiations this way and not just that classic across the table, you start to recognize negotiation opportunities are all around us. And that gives you the ability to apply your negotiation skills for more effective outcomes, as well as to develop your skills so you're more effective in negotiating going forward. That's spot on. And I would add to sometimes people do think you're right, it's even salary to salary. But you know, you think about all the things that are important to you in life and the way you work, where you work, the amount of time off, salary, all those bits. And often it's the broad basket that you can also negotiate and and optimize, if you will. And to your very point, even those who have said, well, maybe I couldn't manage more on the salary point, but I got more in the time off, that has a compounding effect through their whole career. All of these do, to your point. And I talk about the end of the chapter because I would always get asked this whenever I talk about how do I negotiate my compensation? And we talk about all the different things. Salary is one small part of your total compensation package. And then people always think, well, my company doesn't want me to learn to negotiate because you know, I'm going to get more money from them. Well, first, it might not be money. It could be some of these other things that might not cost them what it would have cost you. But even if it is money, even if, okay, I did get $1,000 more. Again, if your organization, if everyone in the company was 2% better at negotiating, okay, so they're all going to now get slightly more at their next raise. But at the same time, you are so much more effective when negotiating against third parties outside the company or even those internal negotiations to make things run more smoothly. And the short-sighted, narrow way, yes, if the company teaches you to negotiate better, you're going to get a little more money. But good negotiators know it's not just about dividing the pie, it's expanding the pie. And when your company trains you in these skills, together you're going to create such a massively large pie there's going to be bigger pieces for everyone. Awesome point. Mark, we talked about networking a little bit and obviously optimizing your network is massively important as you move through your work and career life. Is there also just one or two, just a tip that you might give on how someone pays attention to that and really ensures that they grow and leverage their network? Most importantly, is to remember that networking is about relationships. Far too many people run around and they simply collect business cards or they add people on LinkedIn. And really, when you just add a stranger on LinkedIn and say, this person's in my network, it's like saying, I just swipe right on Tinder and this person is now my significant other. Right? It's the exact same mentality. Right Now we know on Tinder or a dating app, after you swipe right, there's a little more work to be done. You actually have to build that relationship. The same is true with our professional networking relationships. Mm -hmm. With a give and take. Yes, you have to invest. You have to get to know the person. It's not just about getting. It's about meeting the person, understanding their needs. I think of it karmically. I think about how can I give before I get. And when you have this relationship mentality, you're going to build deeper connections that are going to provide more value to your network. And now I, I know people often say, well, COVID, this is, this is a terrible time for networking. 
Now, COVID is a terrible time for many things, and it's certainly something we, we wish didn't happen. But for networking, there's actually some great silver linings. It's true we're not going and getting those business cards, but as we just discussed, that's step one. There's 99 more steps that you haven't done, the relationship building. And this is where COVID gives us some opportunity. We were all spending time on a morning commute that's now been given back to us. So imagine if once a week you say, I'm doing virtual coffee. I am every Tuesday morning, I'm just going to reach out to someone I haven't seen and say, hey, guess what, Mary? I do coffee every Tuesday morning from 8.30 to 9. Let me know a Tuesday you're free and let's just catch up. And so you can still build those relationships. We can go even a step further. Networking and relationship building tends to be local. Normally, I'd say, let's meet for coffee, and I'll meet you at this coffee shop that we can both get to. That works great when we're in the same city, not so well when we're thousands of miles apart. And in 2019, if I had reached out and said, hey, let's jump on a video call and have a virtual coffee, <laughs> you would have said, what are you talking about? I want to go out. I want to see real people face-to-face -face at my local coffee shop. I don't want to spend time online. But now we can do that. Now this is normal. And so we can use this time that hopefully will be over soon. But while we have this time, let's focus on the relationships that are non-local, the people we're not going to run into once we're back out. And we can develop those relationships, which we otherwise don't pay as much attention to. Great. As we look ahead and we know there's so many skills, new skills as they evolve and change. And as we look at in the future of work, future workforce, what are some that you would stress generically? I'd say the most important aspect as you look at these skills, it is a mental shift in how you approach it. And I gave the example earlier about networking, that it's not simply collecting business cards and it's not simply, oh, here's how I'm going to cut my way in front of the line. Once you recognize, hey, networking is a different channel to communicating information. Or once I realize networking is not collecting business cards, it's relationship building how you approach it is very different. In fact, I find networking opportunities all around me. Interviewing is a networking opportunity. I have built relationships, both from candidates I've interviewed, as well as people who have interviewed me. And one of the great things about that, you know, if I meet someone at a conference and I say, hi, I'm going to take the next two minutes and tell you, here's why I am awesome. You're going to think I'm egotistical. On the other hand, in the interview, when I tell you why I'm awesome, you're going to think, okay, he's a good interviewer. This is what you're supposed to do. So when we change our mentality on networking, we can find opportunities all around. And the same is true when it comes to leadership, teamwork, communication, negotiations, all of this. The opportunities are all around us when we get that simple mindset shift, and that's going to accelerate us in our own development. And Mark, I think I said in the intro, you are a top-ranked ballroom dancer. What is that all about? And have you learned anything from that that you've applied back to your broader career? Formerly top-ranked ballroom dancer. I'm retired from competitions these days. Ah, It was definitely helpful in my personal development. Not only did it help to diversify my network, there's lots of people I know from the ballroom world who I otherwise wouldn't have come across. But it even, it helped me in some of my own skills. I am naturally an introvert. And growing up, I was a terrible public speaker. I would not speak up. I'd look down at my notes. I'd shake. I wouldn't project. Everything wrong, that's what I was doing. And I knew I had to work on this. I joined the debate club. I did a few things to try and help. But ballroom dancing was probably the best thing I did. And the reason, ballroom dancing, we're not speaking, but really a lot of public speaking, it comes down to confidence or fear, right? It comes down to, well, if I say the wrong thing, what if you know, my pants are unzipped? What if, you know, any one of these fears we have? And when you're on the ballroom floor and I went out and, boy, well, had a very successful ballroom career and went to national championships many times, I also screwed up plenty. I did poorly early on. And so I'd get on the floor and I wouldn't say embarrass myself, but did far worse than I wanted to do. And it was okay. It was having that confidence 
fact, one of my favorite moments in ballroom, the national championships couple I knew, they bumped into another couple and one of the two fell, right? Falling on the floor doesn't happen often. And now first it's ballroom. We're very sportsmanlike. So they stopped, they helped the other couple up, they let the other couple go. But as the, as the couple got up, everyone applauded, right? Everyone, that was the way the audience said, hey, you know, we support you, we get it. We've all fallen at some point. And really when you, when you go on stage, experienced speakers know, look, if you do screw up, you know what? We've seen other people screw up. We don't think they're totally incompetent and we understand. And so when you're on stage and something goes wrong, you say, hey, yeah, I know it's not as bad as I think it is. And that gave me a lot of confidence in my public speaking. I'm sure it's helped with my leadership. I've done, I'm sure, mistakes as a leader, but I have that confidence to know it's not the end of the world. And that is experience I got from ballroom, but you can get from lots of different hobbies or activities you do, but you can incorporate it back into your own leadership, communication, or other professional development. I love that. I imagine all of our work experiences when we're learning and we do need to make mistakes to learn that it's that supportive. What a different experience that would be. And one final question for you, Mark, what's a piece of career advice that may have stayed with you throughout your career that you would share with us? Always work with people who can teach you something. Classically, it's always work with people smarter than you, but smarter can be different things. It might not be better in terms of IQ points, but it's some way that they can help grow and develop you. And early on, I realized I would much rather be at a company with a boring product and boring industry, but fantastic people from whom I can learn than being at some really sexy company with a great product, but people who just aren't going to inspire or help me grow. Thank you so much, Mark. This was really an amazing dialogue. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. You've shared some really good tips and insights. Thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon.